Hello and welcome to The Wise Wire. Now, in theory, being that I'm married to a Dutchman, I should be really good at pronouncing Steph's surname, but I'm not because Dutch surnames are not easy. So, as usual, The Wise Wire is about my guest. So I'm going to introduce you to Steph Van Vogel, I hope. Yes. <laughs> um, good enough for me. <laughs> who has got a fascinating, incredible journey and some brilliant advice to share with you today. So. Enough about me. If you're looking to launch on Amazon, this is a podcast you don't want to miss. Over to you, Steph. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Kirsty. And uh, thank you also for the nice words. Indeed, I'm hoping we're able to bring some, uh, some interesting insights towards your audience. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to, to be here. Awesome. So can you explain a little bit, because you tackle a part of the market that people find overwhelming. And I know this because when I worked at D-Link, I can remember Adrian Edwards and Katie um, Leon sitting for days and days and days trying to upload all of the information for the, the My D-Link Cloud Launch, which was the, one of the first home uh, CCTV cameras. Can you explain how complicated it really is to get your products out into Europe? Um. Well, if you want to start reaching uh, a consumer in a country, uh, they are expecting a local experience. And I think that is the complexity of it all. If you want to start selling across border, you need to understand the local market, which obviously you don't if you don't live in that country. And that ha that has uh, on a different levels. So from compliance perspective, uh, taxes, uh, culture, um, language, currency, taxes, and I think that whole scope of it all that makes it uh, quite a complex activity. Also, one of the main reasons why the majority of the companies only sell in one or in two countries, or for example, they work with a local distributor that understands the market. So I've done the distribution. You know, when I worked at Dealing, when I worked at Samsung, we worked at Hanwha, We all sold through distributors because it made life easier. But if you're a sole trader, a small market owner, going to a large distributor doesn't always work. Have you got any advice you can share with people? Uh, well, actually, the distributor model in general is an old model uh, because. Uh, more and more companies are setting up uh, solutions to start selling cross-border. And uh, for example, a very typical example is so if you want to work in Europe, nowadays you can go to DHL and say, I want to have a logistical contract for all Europe. That was 10 years ago, that was not possible. So you needed to have a local player that worked with the local uh, logistical companies. Why, why, what, what's the impact then is that a manufacturer is able to then sell directly to the local players and the margin in between is basically uh, the competitive advantage of the distributors that uh, versus the distribution model. So uh, the distribution model in general is a not, let's say, a very long-term solution, I believe. And uh, so I, I don't think a company is doing well to really focus solely on a distribution only uh, strategy. Uh, to go back to your main question, if, what, what if you are a small player? Um, um, actually, if you are a small player, a distributor can be uh, the shortest way to start gathering, uh, let's say, to get some foothold in a new country. 
but you definitely need to have something to offer towards the distributor because if you're one out of 100 brands that they distribute you want to make sure that their sales team is going to focus on your product so you need to be well prepared with a good catalog with good promotion material marketing budget etc otherwise you're able to boot but the distributor will not target your brand and that was my role that's that's what we i very rarely talk about uh because it it doesn't seem necessarily relevant to what i do now but of course that's what i did i ran the distribution channel for these companies i was out there and to you know to, to i was there running these sales incentive days and i wasn't i can't say that i was exhausted because i wasn't young i was in my 40s and i was having to come up and jeer these sales teams and keep them going and focus them and find ways to drop my price and create margin. And that's the beautiful nugget here. I was talking to somebody yesterday about the cost of goods. I can't, don't know if you want to expand a little bit about margin and the cost of goods. Um, uh, so if you look at the whole uh, chain, let's say, if you look at what, what in my experience, how it normally looks like, is that a retailer has approximately, uh, depending on product category, obviously that's really important to say that product category really varies, but let's say on an average, it's 30 to 35%. For that activity, the retailer has the complete consumer operation setup. So they sell single items to provide high customer support, people can return. There's a showcase, that's a web shop, or that is, for example, a store where they can go to. Then you have the distributor. The distributor often works against 20%. For that, they keep storage in their warehouse. They buy in pallet level from the manufacturer and they sell often in master packs towards the retailer. They build up the relationships with the different local retailers and for that, they earn approximately 20%. Then you go back to the manufacturer and on an average, we can say the manufacturer after selling it to the distributor still has another 50% on margin for the production, uh, the marketing activities, the brand development, research and development in general. Uh, so they have the biggest cake, sort of, but also by far the biggest uh, responsibility. So how do you help somebody? Because, you know, it's quite complex and there's not, when you start taking away 20% for a distributor, 40, up to about 40% for a retailer, that's 60% of your business. And that's before you look at your costs, right? That's that's your, your cost of manufacturing. So what do you do that helps somebody that, I mean, I don't sell product, but somebody who's selling product or, because I saw on your website, you've got some really cool products that are out there on Amazon. So what do you do? So to give a little bit of background about myself, so what I did for almost 15 years, and uh, I was helping companies to set up an infrastructure so they can supply to the consumer um, uh, on, a, on a European level with giving the local experience so that uh, the client from Denmark or from Spain or from the UK was thinking he's buying something locally, but it was actually managed. So I was looking at the warehouse, the warehouse management system, the logistical network, the customer support, which language do they speak? Are they able to reply in 24 hours, etc.? And then you realize that uh, everybody is understanding the direct-to-consumer strategy is the strategy for the long term. Uh, but if you come from a traditional um, a company, that uh, then is a quite a big culture change to. To, to recognize that you need to have a high customer experience because online, uh, let's say the consumer, the end consumer is expecting a very high 
experience. They want to have the product delivered next day. They want to pick it up at the local post office, return it at the local post office, have customer support in the, the same language that replies within 24 hours, etc. And if you need to change a company saying, okay, you've been shipping pallets huh, as a, for example, manufacturer, you've been shipping pallets worth of 5,000 euro, and then explain them that that order of 50 euro is just as important as the order of 5,000 euro. That's a big, big culture change, mostly. Also procedures and systems, etc. cetera. Uh, so what I did is I was working inside companies where everybody says, yes, e-commerce is the future and we want to change. But at the end, you see that it was not really optimized, let's say, the, the sales. The sales had a lot more potential, but because of the already existing setup, it's quite complex, specifically if you want to do it on an international level. So, yeah, long story short, what I do instead of going from project to project to project, I designed the whole infrastructure uh, from zero. And now I offer it as a service. So we say to companies, um, for the price of a half FTE, you get 30 FTE that are busy with making sure that the consumer in those countries get a local experience. Yes. What does that basically mean? The, the, the manufacturer ships the stock to us, and we make sure that the products are visible on Amazon, but also all other major marketplaces in Europe. And we make sure that the consumer in those countries has, like I said, the local experience. So basically, you're able to immediately distribute your products on a pan-European level as well on a professional level. Brilliant. So let's address the elephant in the room, because unfortunately, there was a thing that happened and it changed the way the UK can trade. So we have to address the Brexit conversation and we have to address the impact of that because there was a, there has been a way. There's been a, a challenge for people to get to you. Know, for me to send something to my in-laws, for instance, I send it to them in Rotterdam and they have to pay 25 pounds to get it released from customs and it's not even worth that. So we can't ship as family presents to each other. We now have to work out, actually we send a lot of gift vouchers, but I wonder if we could address a little bit about the elephant in the room of Brexit. Yeah, I mean, Brexit uh, from an international trade perspective was not a very smart move. Um, um... Uh, so yeah, we, we we work with a lot of UK companies that were used to sell a lot in Europe and then basically went from 100 to zero, from 100 to 20. Uh, we, we as a company act as import of record. So then basically just ship to one, to one warehouse, uh, the invoice to one warehouse, and we take care of all the customs and all the local setup. Um, so on this way, we solved it. So for us, it gave an opportunity. But for yeah, UK companies, uh, well, actually UK, because I've been you know, in the international trade on the European level for many years now, I always found UK the most competitive market. I find that in the UK, the, the, uh, there are very strong traders, much stronger than in the majority of the, uh, basically, if you look at UK and Europe, I think UK has the best traders of, the, uh, of that region, for sure, by far. I think because it, was an, it is an island, so I think from years ago, you already had, let's say, the, the experience with, with trading. Uh, so from that perspective, it's always difficult to do business there from a margin perspective, because there's a lot more negotiation um, going on. Um, so that is now still, uh, still active, basically, because I was expecting that it would be doing business like with Norway and Switzerland, but it's still messy at the border. 
And uh, yeah, I'm hoping that the problems will be solved soon and that procedures are going to be a lot more smoother to help basically both parties uh, on that side, each side of the uh, each side help both parties. Thank you for sharing that because I don't think we, we talked about Brexit and there's a, obviously there's a whatever the split was. I'm not, I know it's like a couple of percentage. Um, I'm not going to try and pull that up on air when I'm uh, live, but the, I know that there was a real big divide in the country, but I don't think any of us really thought about the long-term impact and we are still suffering with it. So we can't not have somebody who solves the problem and how to ship your goods to Europe on the podcast without actually addressing it. So thank you. So I want to hear a bit about the man behind the brand, the man who you are, because you live in Tuscany, you're yes. a father. So I wonder yes. if you could just tell me more about you. Okay, um, so uh, born and raised in the Netherlands, grew up at a farm. So basically uh, I started working when I was uh, maybe 10 years old. So uh, I've always been working, always. Uh, let's say from, from the age of 12, I was always having uh, jobs. Uh, so I think that really um, had an impact growing up on a farm on my, let's say, my uh, work ethics. Um, uh, studied international trade. Uh, that's also quite a common thing in the Netherlands, like in, like the people from the UK. We have a let's say a long history when it comes to international trade. Um, uh, been now indeed already for 17 years together with my with my wife. Uh, I'm 40, so uh, yeah, for a <laughs> very long period of if you look at my total total life. Um, indeed, father of three. And uh, I lived and worked in, I worked basically in almost any country in Europe, uh, but also outside Europe. Uh, I lived in five and now I live in Italy. And why do I live in Italy? Is because I like to drink wine during lunch. That's one of the reasons. Uh, and the second reason is I lived in uh, Italy before, like 10 years ago, when I really liked it. And um, when the company was developing and I need to attract people from all over Europe, do that when you're in the Netherlands in a city like Amsterdam uh, but I didn't want to live uh, in Amsterdam or another big city so then I was thinking then I was actually reading a, a startup story of a company that had the same issue to attract international staff in a quite quick pace and then they moved to Barcelona and they said come live and work in Barcelona and then immediately there was no issue because everybody specifically nowadays the young professionals like to have let's say some flexibility about traveling etc so I thought, hey, why not? Why don't I also, you know, develop the business in uh, in Barcelona? So I actually traveled to Barcelona, looked for houses and offices. And then, um, you yeah, know, I was then thinking if it's Barcelona, it can also be something else. And after my exp uh, pleasant experience in Italy years ago, I thought, yeah, why not Tuscany? So my wife always wanted to live in, uh, in Italy. So uh, the decision was made, and that was five years ago. Now we've been living with, um, we went there with, with a pregnant wife and one son, and now we have uh, three sons uh, and already living, you know, for, for five years, yeah. I love it. And I just want to touch on the work ethic a little bit, because I find that that's quite culturally, uh, obviously I'm married to a Dutchman, and um, I find that's quite a, a cultural thing in Holland is the work ethic. You know, he started working. He'd kill me if I tell you the story. But hey, he never watches the podcast anyway. So I'm going to. He started working at 14 in a bumblebee factory. 
I won't tell you the other bit of the story that it will still keep in my head and make me giggle. Um, but he started doing that because he wanted a TV and his parents said, so he's a little bit older than you, but not much. And his parents said, if you want a TV, you've got to go out and work and earn it. So I think he was about 11 or 12, not much older than you're saying you were. And he was working in a bumblebee factory folding cardboard. And then he actually started putting bumblebees out for the shipping to the farm. So you probably received some of the bumblebees to pollinate your vegetables on your farm, if you were just selling vegetables, that were sent from the bumblebee factory that my husband worked oh, at. That's a funny story indeed. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but I do see, you know, I look at my in-laws, I look at Nettie and I look at Pete, and um, Pete was out working from, a bit like my parents, a generation thing, working and working, working from a really young age and started working on the tools, the same as my husband. He started working on the boats offshore. So it's, I just find the cultural work ethic in Holland really fascinating. I have it because I'm of a generation where you could start working at 13. But it was just something I really wanted to touch on because it really resonates with me that yeah. you seem to have a very strong work ethic as a, as a country. Yeah, I think uh, now because I've been working and living in multiple countries, uh, I can definitely confirm what you're saying. Uh, if I go to family, uh, it's probably the the second question. How is work? Right. So you talk uh, a lot with friends and family, how things are going at work. Are you happy? What are you learning? What are you doing? What? How does, does the market look like? Right. You really want to understand how that business operates where people work. Well, for example, in Italy, it's uh, I know people for for a year, and I would like to talk about work, but they don't. They don't. They don't talk about work. I have no idea what kind of job they do, and they don't like to discuss it because work is not of an importance. Food is, which obviously is also a nice uh, subject. Uh, so yeah, it's true. It's a very cultural thing. Uh, work is a very important thing in in the Netherlands uh, when it comes to happiness, right? So also, if you're not happy at work, everybody says change job. If you're not happy, change job, make a change, and a lot of work related. And and the reason I run the business is because I wasn't happy, and Nettie and Pete went change it and I remember the conversation and when I was launching I was like oh I'm never going to make it it's, it's really difficult they were like nope you just keep working at it um there was something else I was going to ask about uh the Netherlands but it's it's gone so I'll come back to that but inspiration you've talked about your wife you're living in Tuscany you've got three children I know what I was going to talk about because I've just brought it back in parenting Dutch parents are apparently the Dutch children are apparently the happiest children in the the in the world apparently to do with Dutch parenting I don't know okay I will go what do, I, I don't know if we can discuss that but apparently there is a statistic that says that Dutch parenting is the best <laughs> okay well obviously for me difficult to, to judge uh, I, but I what I really think is a big difference uh, but I think in the UK is similar but here in Italy for example it's not we bring kids to bed at seven o'clock that's you know that's the that's the time everybody goes to bed so let's say until you're eight or something like that you go to bed at seven o'clock while here in Italy it could be 10 or 11 and they always say to me how is that possible and I said but how is it possible to put them in bed at 10 you you first of all you want to have your own private evening and secondly if I if my kids don't sleep 10 hours the next day they're not uh, you know it's not that fun I'm with you. I've got a seven year old and trust me, she's just asked for her bedtime to go to half past seven. And we are we're, we're crying. I'm going to be honest. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're crying because that means actually 
that you know, she's asleep by um, 8.15, if we're lucky. And it's like, no, we have to go to bed by nine because we're exhausted. Anyway, um, so in, inspiration. We've talked about your, your children. Um, I'm wondering who's inspired you. Um, I think... Uh, I think my uh, if if I look at to prove myself, I would think it's still towards my parents. You know, even though I'm you know 40, as somehow I think that's a big big driver still to to show, you know, that you are able to get some 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 things done. And uh, that's basically the, the fundament. And I think over the over the years, you have different people that you work with, um, but of course also be friends that uh, sort of you want to level up with or you want to prove yourself to. Uh, so that's basically how I, I get inspired. Uh, what I really like to do is uh, I don't like social media that much. But if I follow people on social media, those are often uh, some entrepreneurs that I look at. And I think that also helps me when I'm doing that. I think they call it Zoom, Zoom zombie scrolling or something like that. That at least there are people that are doing some stuff or being in a position uh, that I also want to be. So that's a bit how I look at my, if I look at towards persons, that's how I look at my inspiration. Awesome. And have there any been been moments in your life where you've you've felt that you've had to? I mean, you've you've changed jobs, you've moved, you've you've, you've done pivots. But I'm just wondering if there's any moments where you've had really really great decisions, or those decisions where you think, "I wish I hadn't done that." So those are, those are hard moments. I think uh, it's not per se decisions. It's more about uh, getting out of a situation that was horrible than recognizing it was the best experience uh, in my life um, so um, at that for me always uh, surprises me how it changes your behavior and your view on life and in business when basically uh, specifically the wrong things happen yeah i was talking to someone yesterday about that um sometimes you could be in a job and you just can't see what is going on around you and when you're in a company sometimes the the power plays you're being you and it's not it's not all business but sometimes you feel like you're something's going on but you can't see what it is but you're unhappy and sometimes you have to take that leap of faith and jump on that surfboard and just see where you land so um i'm going to ask a question which i don't normally ask but I, I think I want to add so, something to it yeah. because if I then look look back, um, I, I think your stomach feeling is very important. Your intuition is is really important. So because it's quite easy sometimes to just keep on going, hope that things change. But if you're unhappy, you I do think you need to make big cuts, and then you will realize that uh, you will quite quickly get back on your feet. Uh, so I can always uh, definitely uh, confirm and also stimulate people, you know, make decisions, big decisions, keep making on big decisions. It's not going to harm you. And uh, and looking back on the long term, it were those decisions that really brought you further in, uh, in life. That's really good advice. I was told when I was uh, learning to, you know, doing my singing, uh, when I was with Niven, uh, Niven Miller, he was my singing teacher at the time, and he taught me that if your heart and your head agree, 
then it's a right decision. If your heart is saying one thing and your head is saying the other, really listen to both, but probably go to your gut. <laughs> it was yeah, really, I, really all my bad decisions were basically by not listening to my gut feeling. <laughs> and and there is that moment. It's uh, everything I do, everything that I've done since I launched this, you know, KVDB, has been gut, uh, 100%. Someone said to me, you're so brave. And it's like, no, I I kind of just go, let's give it a give it a whirl. You know, you inspired me this morning to, to write a blog. There were things that happened in my life where I go, ah, oh, yeah. That's a really good thing, but it's that guttural, guttural feeling where I go, that's the right thing. Same as launching the podcast. It was a gut thing, but I also have to act on my gut super quickly because if I don't act on it, it's gone. I don't know if you have the mm -hmm. same thing. Um, I, 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 I tend to stimulate myself to always uh, immediately take action because <laughs> otherwise I know uh, it's, it's going to fade away or come back three weeks later and then I'm just annoyed with myself that it didn't start that three weeks ago. So, uh, yeah, I I definitely can. Uh, uh, I have the same way, for sure. <laughs> and I love that. So I'm going to ask you um, a question I said earlier that I don't normally ask, which is, what would you say to your 20-year-old self now? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Um yeah, you know, uh, buy real estate. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, what I would say is, yeah, one, listen more to your gut feeling. Uh, surround yourself with people that are further in life. And uh, uh, and uh, and that's basically the main the main things I would uh, think are going to positively yeah. impact. If I'd listened to my gut, I would have uh, saved myself 12 years of pain. So I'm with you on that one. Really, really good advice there. Um, this is where the tables turn and I get to worry a little bit uh, because I don't know what the question is. You get to throw a question at me, which I have no idea. So fill your boots and I will try to be in the hot seat for two minutes. <laughs> Yeah, looking at your looking at your experience, um, uh, I would like to know if you would be in in in, my, in our position and let's say uh, working on an international level, finding your your relations and building building also up that relationship relations. What uh, how are you able to let's say? get people motivated uh, to keep working with you on the long term and really see you as a partner? A really, really good question. And it is it is an interesting one because, you know, when I look at how I go to market, a lot of the time I'm going to market and I end up talking about public speaking or camera confidence because that seems to be the emotive pain that most of my customers have but actually what I really do is I look at everything that you say and I put it all the way through and I'm looking at even potentially creating reports that will go to Europe like dissemination exploitation communication strategies so it's a lot more than I actually put out there and so once people start to unveil it's a bit like an onion it's like that if you think of an onion layer you start with the outside so the shiny nice red onion that you know it's healthy and it's good and and you want to be like that onion you want to use that onion because it's not got any rot on it and it's, it, you can you're going to make it a really nice bit of food but as you start to peel it away you might find another shoot of an onion and another shoot and you might find more and as you're uncovering it you find out what i really do and you start to discover the strategy 
And then you find out that I ran distribution channels and you realize that I can do multiple, yeah, I can run a big project with multiple partners and you go, I don't know about that. Can you do this? And it's like, yes, I can do that. And so once you uncover what I actually do, you're ending up working with me for a very long time. So usually a three-year investment because I will do every single bit of communication from the, the report that you're going to submit to Europe, the strategy and the running of the project, right the way down to how you were going to stand in the room and present that information to someone. At the same time, I will also get nervous if I've got to go and present data and I will struggle and I might talk too fast and I might make the same mistakes that you're going to make because I'm human. And the big thing about it is I'm really human. So I'm not just a on-camera public speaking coach. I'm not just a marketing strategist. I'm actually a communication and brand strategist. And you want me in your company because I'm going to make sure that you rock on every single screen. And it's as simple as that. <laughs> How was that? I'm not sure. I'm, I might steal that as my as my pitch now. That was actually, yeah, yeah, yeah I might, I might cut that out and put that on my YouTube channel. <laughs> you should, indeed. <laughs> Thank you I'm for convinced. asking. Oh, thank you so much for asking me that question. Um, as I said, I had no idea and I didn't know the onion was going to come in. Thank you for your time this morning. Um, I've really awesome. appreciated you sharing your wisdom this morning. Good. Thank you very much for, for having me, Kirstie, and I hope to do it uh, sometime again in, in the future. And uh, yeah, it was really nice to be here. Thank you. No problem.